Welcome to the Park City Podcast, a podcast created by Park City Church to discuss who God is and how he is at work in our lives. I'm your host, David Morelli. Welcome back to the Park City Podcast. I'm David Morelli, and as always, I'm joined by my friend, Phil Schomber. Phil, this week we celebrate the National Day of this specific type of pizza. Now, it's not New York style, and it's not Chicago style. It's actually Detroit style pizza. Have you ever heard of that? No, I guess I guess I'm not uh, a pizza, a sufficient pizza f- aficionado to have come across that. What what is it? Well, yeah, this was new for me, so I had to, I had to look this up because I you know heard of Chicago and New York style. Those were the kind of the two that I you know knew about. Uh, but Detroit style is thick crust. So like the crust is just about like an inch thick throughout the entire pizza. So it almost kind of looks like deep dish pizza, but it's actually mostly crust and then, you know, your traditional toppings. Uh, and then the other unique piece is it's cooked in a square or rectangle pan. So you get kind of that caramelization on the bottom of the crust and in the corners. And so again, not the circle, uh, but square or rectangle. So that's Detroit style pizza. So now, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm usually break it down into frozen and delivery. Those are my two styles of pizza. So <laughs> there we go. I guess if there's a, you know, someone listening from a, from a pizza company that, you know, Hey, we could, we could potentially use a sponsor. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what, that's what really this is. This is all about. Well, kidding aside, of course. Uh, last week, we traced God's providence through the division of the kingdom of Israel and then its subsequent exile into Babylon. And this week is our final week actually discussing God's providence. And we're going to wrap up the conversation by talking about his providence as Israel is awaiting the Messiah. Um, and to get into that discussion today, we actually have to back up a little bit chronologically to just before the exile, just before what we were talking about last week. Now, last week I mentioned the prophet Jeremiah. He writes the book Lamentations, and we had our discussion on that and and where we see the heart of God in Lamentations 3. Jeremiah also writes the book Jeremiah, uh, which in the middle of that book records this promise of a new covenant that God will establish with his people. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 33 say, and this is the Lord speaking, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." So, Phil, what is significant about this promise, and what does it reveal about the Lord's plans for his people? Yeah, so, as you as you noted, Jeremiah is writing after the fall of the northern kingdom, and shortly before and right up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon. And so, given that judgment uh, that falls on Judah eventually, and that uh, Jeremiah and the other prophets have been pointing towards, 
an obvious question is, has Israel's unfaithfulness finally brought an end to God's covenants with Israel? And Jeremiah's message is no. Despite the fact that Israel has repeatedly broken its covenant with the Lord, he intends to establish a new covenant with them. And what's significant about this new covenant is that God intends to write the terms of the covenant on the people's hearts. So in other words, God is going to work in such a way that the people will actually be able to faith, excuse me, to be faithful to the covenant because God is going to change their hearts. So as the people are being taken into exile, there's this message of hope that uh, is, is able to sustain them. Yeah, we're seeing again the unfolding of God's plans, and we've been tracing that, or tracing that, excuse me, all the way back from you know creation and the fall in, in Genesis three of how the Lord is redemptively at work. We talked about you know the seed from Adam and Eve that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, and then we've discussed all these different covenants, and now we get this new covenant, and exactly that's that significance that. Uh, the Lord's going to write it on our hearts that he will be our God, that we will be uh, his people. So there's this very intimate, personal element to this that, again, for a people about to head into exile, to endure exile for, what is it? It's like 70-some years in Babylon. Is that correct? Yeah, I think 70. Um, I think Jeremiah prophesies 70. Okay. Yes. So could be yeah. wrong, but I think that's correct. Yeah. So roughly, you know, a generation's worth, and then you know, to come back to the land, uh, as was granted through uh, the Lord's providence in working through the king of Persia to to grant them that, um, which is kind of right after you know the book of Esther that we've been going through. That's happening while the Jews are still living in exile. So just to kind of put those dots together, um, so we're getting again this unfolding of the Lord's plan. So. The Israelites are granted freedom to return back to Jerusalem and the promised land, but things are not as they were, right? Right. So the city of Jerusalem and the temple had been reduced to rubble by uh, the Babylonians um, at the time of the exile. So then when later when the, the people are allowed to return— and Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, he has to set the people to work rebuilding the walls uh, to provide protection from the people because their enemies around them were not in any way happy that the the people of Israel had, re- had returned. And when the temple is finally rebuilt, it doesn't resemble its former glory. So, for example, we, re- we read in Ezra 3 that many of the older priests and Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation uh, of the new temple being laid. So the return from exile, although it's a great event in Israel's history, um, things are very different when the people return. Yeah, there's very much a uncertainty as to what life looks like, what a relationship with God looks like, uh, again, as they are really trying to restore kind of the glory of Israel, what 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 it was at its height uh, with the temple and just the kingdom as it was uh, under David and, and Solomon, as we discussed a couple weeks ago. So there's, again, just that, that question that you stated is just what, you know, has Israel's unfaithfulness actually led to ultimately the Lord kind of 
dealing with them differently. Um, but they begin to return to the land and they begin restoring it as you detailed Nehemiah and Ezra kind of lead that charge. And the Lord continues to promise kind of what the future of Israel is going to look like. The minor prophets that write uh, through this period of, of Israel's history kind of give us little snippets of this. Um, we've talked about in the past uh, in Joel chapter 2, God promises his Holy Spirit. He says that he will pour out his Holy Spirit uh, upon his people. It's actually the verse that the Apostle Peter then quotes on the day of Pentecost. Um, in Haggai 2, uh, the Lord actually references the temple, as you were just saying, and, and promises that the latter glory of the temple will be even greater than the formal, former glory. Excuse me. So again, not uh, in, in Israel's mind, right? They were experiencing as this, that temple built by Solomon was kind of the pinnacle of their society, their culture, their communion uh, with the Lord. And so that was kind of upheld in, in such high esteem that as this new one's being built, it's kind of not really comparing. The Lord's actually saying that this latter glory of the temple will be even greater. And what that's pointing to is Christ as the temple, that cr- the glory of Christ is ultimately going to be far greater than a house made by human hands. Uh, Zechariah 3, uh, the Lord promises to bring his servant, refers to him as the branch. We understand the branch to be Christ. Uh, Again, in Zechariah chapter 9, God promises that a king is coming to Israel with righteousness and salvation. Uh, Of course, we understand that to be Christ as well. Even prophesies, Zechariah does, that the Lord will come in on a donkey. And we see that come to fulfillment as Jesus enters Jerusalem on Holy Week, riding a donkey on Palm Sunday. Um, later in Zechariah chapter chapter 12, the Lord talks about that we will look on him whom they have pierced, uh, and a fountain shall be opened to cleanse them from sin. Again, foreshadowing what is happening on the cross uh, generations later as Christ's substitutionary uh, atonement pays the penalty for our sin in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. God prophesies about a messenger who will come to prepare the way for the Lord. We understand that to be John the Baptist. And again, that's where we then pick up in the New Testament with John the Baptist doing that in the birth of Jesus. But in the middle of that, again, there's though the Lord is, is making these promises uh, and revealing and kind of unfolding his plan before his people, there's still lots of uncertainty. And so it's not uh, again, they don't have the the benefit of hindsight of understanding that Christ is uh, the fulfillment of all of those promises. Right. So for them, when they read these promises and they set it alongside the, the post-exilic experience, um, it creates an expectation that what we're experiencing now cannot be the fulfillment of those promises. So that's why they're looking for something greater to come. Um, You know, for example, God had promised David an everlasting kingdom, and that promise still stands in their experience. They're they're still waiting for that fulfillment. And, um, And that idea of a son of David who would come gets picked up, you know, in the 
in the prophets. So, for example, in Ezekiel 37, it says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So there's this expectation that a son of David will come and that there will be a new and everlasting covenant that God will establish with his people, and at that point he will dwell among them forever. So there, there's a partial fulfillment of those promises in the return of the people from, from the exile, but there's this expectation of a time when God is going to do something more. This is why the people of Israel, Israel were looking for a Messiah who would come to bring all those promises to fulfillment. So part of the reason they're looking for that is they can sense that these there has to be something more than uh, in terms of fulfillment than what we're experiencing right now, even though we're back in the land. So again, there's this expectation building, but something we might miss as we are reading scriptures, you might finish the book of Malachi and flip over two pages and begin the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the first book in the New Testament, and just think, boom, birth of Jesus, there he is. Uh, but the reality is, about 400 years pass between the end of Malachi, the events in the end of Malachi, to the uh, to Jesus' birth and the events recorded at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. So what are we then to make about that amount of time passing? Yeah, so God has a timetable all his own. I, you know, I think <laughs> I think we realize that He is working out His plan and fulfilling His promises, but that plan doesn't always unfold as rapidly as we would like. Yet, everything does happen at just the right time to accomplish God's goals. I think there's something of a parallel to our waiting for Christ's return. You know, right now. We don't know when he's going to return, and we don't know why, from our perspective, it has taken so long. Yet we know God is continuing to work in the interim, and our faith is strengthened as we wait on him. I imagine it would have been similar in the intervening years between the Old and New Testaments. God's people were looking for that time when the Messiah would come and God's kingdom would be inaugurated, and they and they were sustained by their faith in him. Yeah, this is a theme that we've discussed multiple times in our conversation on providence, that ultimately God's providence is not dependent upon our schedules. And, you know, that's a tension that we face, Like just like you said, that his plans often don't unfold as rapidly as we would like. Uh, but again, exactly as you said, everything is happening at just the right time to accomplish God's goals. You know, I think of a verse in, in 2 Peter, I think it's 2 Peter 3, 8, um, the Apostle Peter says that for him, for God, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. Again, when we think of and consider the transcendence of God, uh, that perspective shifts a little bit. Um, and so just because things are taking longer than we might want them to or than we thought that they would, uh, that doesn't mean that 
it isn't happening perfectly according to his purposes, that the accomplishment of those purposes isn't going to happen. And you're very right. And I think that parallel then of us waiting for Christ's return, that there is an element where, you know, our faith is kind of tested and strengthened then as a result of learning to rely and depend upon the Lord, even in the midst of uncertainty. Right. Because I think from our perspective, we might wonder, well, Christ came, why didn't, you know, he just ushering God's kingdom, you know, right then and there. And um, we don't have all the answers, but we do know that God has a plan. And part of that, again, is us growing in our faith as we live out the Christian life in this, you know, time, you know, until he, until he returns. And again, it's, it's with a lot of things, you know, we are impatient, but God is able to be uh, perfectly patient, knowing exactly what needs to happen so that history proceeds exactly as uh, he intends it to. Exactly. Well, throughout this conversation, then we've, we've drawn out these themes that God's providence is pervasive. It is ultimately decisive in that uh, decisive over human action, good and otherwise, that his plans will be accomplished. We Again, we're touching on there the timetable piece that it doesn't happen according to our timetable most times. Uh, his providence is undeserved. Uh, we've touched on that, that theme over and over again as we've looked at Israel's history that the Lord is not acting uh, out of uh, Israel deserving his grace, deserving his protection, his preservation, etc., but rather he is acting according to the faithfulness of himself, of, of his name, of the words, the promises that he has made that he intends to keep, uh, that, again, he remains faithful to himself even when we are faithless. Um, but Jesus now is, as we've discussed and hinted at, uh, is the ultimate example of God's providence and really the fulfillment of his redemptive plans. So how exactly is Jesus the fulfillment of God's redemptive plans? Yeah, all of God's promises come together in Jesus. The power of sin and death, you know, as we've talked about, has held sway over humanity since the fall. But, you know, as we've noted uh, in Genesis 3, God promised that a seed would come to remedy that problem. And Jesus is that one person that we've been looking for all that time. In his death and resurrection, he has broken the power of sin and death. Um, uh, Another promise that comes uh, to fulfillment in Christ is the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. Um, And that is fulfilled uh, in the fact that salvation is now open to all who would put their faith in Jesus, not just the people of Israel. Um, And then in some ways, more obviously, Jesus is the Davidic king who will usher in God's everlasting kingdom. Um, we had talked about the the new covenant and how um, the people's hearts would be changed. Um, and Jesus fulfills that by sending the spirit uh, who changes our hearts uh, and brings to reality that uh, picture of the new covenant that we talked about in Jeremiah. Yeah, as you noted, through Jesus's uh, death and, and resurrection, he also restores this relational rest between us and God, that what was broken, uh, you know, we looked back right in the garden, Adam and Eve, you know, communed with God, 
they shared, you know, this special intimacy with him. And then when they sinned, that relationship was, was broken. There was this uh, then obstacle of sin in between that them and, and God. And we see Jesus uh, pay that penalty uh, in order to restore us to God. It's, we're actually going to be discussing that next week in our conversation on the, the devotionals. We talk about justification, that, that God declaring us righteous. And again, that's one of those miracles of, of what Jesus did that we no longer uh, owe God this, this penalty for our sin, but Christ has paid that on our behalf. That's what it means when we talk about a substitutionary atonement um, and so, again, that theme of rest that we've seen throughout the Old Testament of the Lord constantly uh, uh, looking to bring his people into rest. Yes, rest from, from enemies in the promised land, uh, you know, being that, but more than just a physical rest, a spiritual rest, a relational rest in him. That Again, the promise of, you know, Ezekiel 37 and, and Jeremiah 31, that I will be their God and they will be my people, and Christ is the one who perfectly accomplishes that and, and sends his spirit uh, to then, you know, carry on that work in us that, exactly as you said, that, that our hearts would be changed such that we could experience that reality. Right, yes, and it's all, you know, everything that God's people have, has been, have been looking for since the beginning, um, Jesus makes possible. And so all those various threads get tied together in him and what he's done for us. And as you said, as a result of what uh, he's done, um, he's, he's going to bring about the day when uh, we'll get to enjoy uh, God's presence. He, he will, again, um, dwell among us and he will be our God and we will be his people as it was originally intended. Exactly. And I hope, you know, just as you were saying that we're tying those threads together, that as we've gone through this series over the last few weeks, I hope that is connecting those dots for you as you read the Old Testament, that you under you start to kind of, God's providence kind of just pops off the page uh, at you, that you start to understand, again, his faithfulness, uh, his, uh, his providence is pervasive, that again, all his purposes will be accomplished, and that Ultimately, that gives us a confidence, gives us a hope uh, where we live today. That as we look back and read the Old Testament and see these examples of the Lord's faithfulness, of his preservation of his people, of his grace, uh, that that gives us confidence that, again, just as you're saying, that when Christ, we know that Christ is coming again, that that's been promised, uh, and we know that that will come to pass, that, again, the Lord will be faithful uh, in accomplishing that purpose, and that gives us just a gospel confidence a God confidence in living our lives today. Well, we will uh, pause the discussion there for the final time on uh, providence. Well, probably not the final time. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll end up hitting on God's providence at some point in our future podcast episodes. Uh, but we'll move over to the devotional then where we've been talking about salvation. And last week we talked about the challenging topic of election and, and discussed what the Bible has to say about that. And this week, now we are turning our focus to the topic of conversion or turning to Christ in faith. So we'll start by just kind of defining conversion. So, Phil, what does conversion involve? Yeah, uh, conversion in the biblical sense is a response to the gospel where a person, understanding the judgment they deserve for sin, 
turns from sin to Christ, trusting in what he did to save them rather than themselves. Yeah, exactly. We really involves kind of two main things, faith and repentance. And you kind of defined repentance there, uh, you know, in, in really repentance is a turning away from sin and turning to Christ. And of course, we talked about being saved by faith and, and the importance that that has. Uh, one of the things that I was noting as I was studying this was we often think of conversion as a single moment where we accepted Christ, right? We, we prayed a prayer, we answered an altar call, etc. And there is ultimately a decisive moment in which, you know, we didn't have salvation, then all of a sudden we do. Uh, and so there, there is a decisive moment where salvation is granted, but there really is more, you know, going on kind of behind the scenes. And historically speaking, early church leaders actually saw conversion as a lifelong process that begins with this initial turning to and trusting in Christ, and that ultimately culminates in our final glorification with him in the new heaven. And so part of the reasoning for this view is really that repentance, that turning to Christ, turning away from sin and turning to Christ, that's a continual process, right? We don't simply repent once, rather it's something we do daily, hourly, uh, to repent of sin in our lives and, and turn to Christ in faith. That's something that if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you've probably experienced that. That uh, Again, we it's not just a, one, a one-time a one turning, uh, but something that we are constantly doing as we still uh, you know, experience sin in our lives to this day. Right. I, I, you know, I think it's appropriate to think of uh, conversion as, you know, that that moment that we make that commitment to turn to Christ. And so in that sense, it, you know, I think you can think of conversion as this one moment. Um, but you're right. It, it's important to realize that we're, we're at that, having made that choice, we're on a lifelong journey with Christ. And that is going to involve, um, a continuing need to to repent because we know that um, we're we're not sinless, and so I, I like the way Wayne Grudem puts it. He says that although it is true initial saving faith and initial repentance only occur once in our lives, and when they occur, they constitute true conversion. Nonetheless, the hard attitudes of repentance and faith only begin at conversion. These same attitudes should continue throughout the course of our Christian lives. Each day, there should be heartfelt repentance for sins that we have committed and faith in Christ to provide for our needs and to empower us to live the Christian life. Uh, so it, it, we definitely want to think of conversion as starting a process in which faith grows and repentance happens uh, regularly rather than this this point in time that we do something and then we, you know, just forget about it and it doesn't matter what else <laughs> goes on. Um, and again, I think Grudem gets at that in his, in the quote that I just shared. Yeah. I liked the way he worded that, the, the heart attitude. I think that helps us to, to grasp that again, as a, as a lifelong thing that again, humbly we, we must understand and, and then be willing to confess and repent. Um, from sin as as we are not uh, sinless as a result of our as of our conversion. So we've been touching on this idea of repentance, and we've you know just defined it then as a turning away from sin and a turning 
to Christ. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, we discussed that we are saved by grace, through faith, that it's not uh, any works, quote-unquote, that we do. It's something that we do in order to earn favor with God. But couldn't we say then that repentance is really just a work that we have to perform in order to be saved? Yeah, it's not a work, I would say, for, for two reasons. Uh, it's important to understand that when we talk about works in the context of salvation— we're not merely talking about an action that we take, something that we do. We're talking about the idea of doing something to earn something. And Paul in Romans 4, for example, refers to the fact that a worker doesn't receive a gift at the end of the week. They, they earn a wage. Um, and then Paul goes on to make the case that salvation is a gift, not a wage, not something that we earn. Um, so what is what is that? have to do with repentance. Well, even if we think of repentance as something we do, and we'll come back to that idea in a moment, uh, repentance could never earn salvation for us. We already owe God perfect obedience. So deciding to turn from sin doesn't really earn us any extra points that we can put towards our, our, our account, so to speak. But on top of that, repentance isn't something that we do on our own. Because of the the hold sin has on us, we don't naturally want to turn from sin. Um, we need the Holy Spirit to work within us to bring us to that point. Yeah, exactly. And that's been a point that we've been talking about and, and is, again, as we tie back to God's providence, that's part of God's providence over salvation, over sin, is that uh, ultimately he sees to it uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit that that work is performed, that that action is performed in our lives. Uh, there was a, a student of John Calvin uh, who described kind of the conversion and then, you know, repentance experience uh, like this. And I thought this was really well worded that helps kind of capture what happens at conversion. He says, one receives Christ and his imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness, that's imputed meaning Christ has gifted us then that righteousness. That all happens through faith alone. And then with Christ's righteousness, one also receives the spirit of sanctification who renews one to repentance. So again, he's very much acknowledging that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's again an action that we take, but really the decisive cause of repentance is initiated by God, by the Holy Spirit, such that we would have the attitude as you know, Gurdon was putting it, that would grieve sin in our lives, such that we would want to turn away from it and turn and cling to Christ. Right, and and sometimes people is can get confused on that point. Although it's we genuinely come to repentance and we want to turn from sin, um, it, it's the Holy Spirit though that that works within us. Um, to change our hearts so that we look at sin and see it for what it is and, 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 and want to turn away from it because we realize how, how bad it is. But, um, so we're the ones who, as a result of the Spirit's work, we're the ones turning from sin, but we, we need, we can't do it on our own without the Holy Spirit sort of generating that desire within us. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the things that we think about at times when we think of conversion, we think of 
testimonies, right? People sharing how uh, they came to believe in the Lord. And I think at times it can feel as though our testimonies, that actual conversion story might kind of feel mundane. Uh, You know, you might not have been saved out of this dramatic, you know, experience, these uh, very, you know, unfortunate, difficult circumstances. So you might feel as though, well, my testimony is just kind of, you know, average. I was raised in a Christian home and at some point, you know, the gospel was made real to me and I accepted faith or accepted uh, Christ in faith. But really conversion is a miracle. Uh, We can't lose that kind of in this discussion. So what is so miraculous about conversion? Yeah, so when you you think about, as you were saying, those those dramatic conversions, we're often, you know, we see the miraculous in it. But again, as, as we just talked about, all of us, no matter what our circumstances, need God to work within us to bring us to the point that we're willing to turn to Christ. So in that sense, it's um, a miracle for all of us. None of us, even if our circumstances don't appear as bad as somebody else's on the surface prior to conversion, in reality, all of us are mired in sin. And it is a miracle that any of us come to the point that we realize that and turn to Christ. Um, And Furthermore, you know, it's not the difficulties of this life that we most need saving from. It's that judgment that we're all under, and we're all under that judgment because of the fall. Um, And, you know, I I think when we think about it in those terms, one, it's miraculous in the sense that um, we couldn't do it on our own. We need God to actually do something that we don't have the power to do on our on ourselves. So when we talk about conversion being a miracle, it's not just hyperbole referring to something that's really great. It's literally an act of God. The Holy Spirit works within us to change our hearts. And then I think to to feel just how great that the results of that are, again, we have to think about not just the sort of temporal benefits of turning to Christ, but really recognizing what he's saving us from. And it's, we're all under that judgment and um, we all need to be just uh, incredibly grateful for what God has done on our behalf. Yeah, it is exactly as you said, it is actually uh, a miraculous act of God that we might be taken from death to life. Um, That, you know, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, that God, in his mercy, would send Christ, that though we were children of wrath, we could become children of God. That is absolutely uh, miraculous, you know, and as as Corey was touching on, as we talked about uh, this past Sunday, that just reviewing and reflecting on the providence of God, God's working in your life, and celebrating those things, that, of course, this is a a, uh, conversion stories, conversion experiences are absolutely absolutely something worth celebrating Uh, another thing that i think that comes to mind is what is going on in heaven within the trinity you know before that moment of salvation is actually received right when we tell our testimonies we often begin with the story you know the moment that we placed our faith in christ but 
really, as we've kind of hinted at and, and kind of drawn out a little bit in our discussion on providence, that isn't the beginning of the story from God's perspective, right? Rather, from before time began, God has been working all things to accomplish his purpose of redeeming and restoring his people back to himself. So the moment we turn to Christ and receive salvation is in one sense a new beginning, right? We are now new in Christ. Uh, you know, The old has uh, passed, the new has come, we've been raised to new life, etc. Uh, these metaphors that the Bible uses for that uh, to describe you know, spiritually what is happening. Uh, but in another sense, it's actually the culmination of God's promise or God's providence, excuse me, accomplishing his eternal purposes. Right. I mean, I think it's incredible to think that God, before the foundation of the world, chose us. Um, and, you know, we talked about it last week when, when we touched on the doctrine of election. And again, I, kn I know there are different ways to understand what the Bible is saying there, but, um, you know, I, I just think it's remarkable to think that, again, we were always part of God's plan. Um, and I just think that's, um, it's, it's a profound um, th thing to contemplate. And again, I think it, it points to um, kind of that miraculous nature that you're talking about. It's not, it's not accidental that um, any of us come to faith. God is the one doing the work and he's planned it from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That, that just, I think we, we often see God, right. As a, this high kind of spiritual being distant from us. Uh, obviously he's so much bigger than us. Uh, but that note there then becomes such a, a personal experience of, of who God really is that he would be so personally and intimately involved in our lives. That is before time began, uh, he would be working these things out, all things, such that this, you know, plan is being accomplished. And, you know, that's kind of the, the what's going on behind the scenes, you know, before that moment of salvation. But even after that, m that moment of salvation, it really becomes an eternal promise that God will see uh, to it that it's actually accomplished, that, that we reach heaven, uh, that we are, you know, united with Christ uh, perfectly, you know, that again, there's a myriad of things that may sway us from faith. If we've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, we've wrestled with unbelief. We've wrestled with temptation to sin. We've you know, wrestled with all of these things that ultimately are, are trying to sway us from faith in Christ. Uh, and so how miraculous is it that God sees to it that our salvation is actually accomplished? That again, even that isn't a work that that ultimately ends with us, but rather the Lord is preserving us uh, until that day. And that just, again, is so miraculous. Right. That's why we often talk about, you know, salvation being from God from start to finish, because it, as you point out, left to ourselves, you know, we could never have confidence that, you know, we would persevere in the faith um, given all that is arrayed against us. Um, but we can have confidence because, again, we know God is working out our salvation for us, with us. And, um, again, it, so it, as you point out, 
that's another miraculous aspect of it because it is God who is working to ensure it. It is, and it is certainly, again, as we've noted, a miraculous thing uh, worth celebrating, worth rejoicing in the wondrous, beautiful grace of the Lord uh, that we can experience that. And, and again, because of what, what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, so again, something absolutely worth celebrating. Well, we'll pause uh, the discussion here. And as always, Phil, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and your wisdom. Uh, as we mentioned, this is the last week discussing providence. So next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series called The Gospel in Real Life. We'll be talking about how the gospel applies to various uh, avenues of our life, various things such as work, rest, relationships, etc. Um, but we're going to kind of back up from that on the podcast and say, well, what is the gospel? And to answer that, we're going to be systematically working through uh, the book of Romans to really let the Bible, let scripture inform uh, what the gospel is. And so we'll, we'll be working through that as we, we follow along our next sermon series. And then in the devotional, we will continue discussing salvation by talking about justification. Again, God declaring us righteous. So please join us next week for that discussion. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Park City Podcast. We hope this resource helps you to see and savor God's goodness, beauty, and grace in your life. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.parkcitychurch.net. Once again, thanks for listening.